God, you are so good to us. Every time we need you, you are right there. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You run after us. As much as it takes, as far as it takes, as long as it takes, God, you continue to pursue. You continue to love. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for your hand being upon this church in the lives of the people. God, we thank you. We lift up those who can't be with us today, those who are sick at home, those who are going through struggles. God, we lift up Ruth Owsley to you as she is recovering in the hospital from successful heart surgery. God, we thank you for modern medicine, for hands that heal, because God, we know that all of that comes from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, God. And so we recognize today how blessed we are, how favored we are by the King of kings and the Lord of lords that we might be able to come into your presence. God, we pray that your name would be lifted high today, that we would fall at your feet and cry out, Lord, Say, you are holy. God, may the words of our lips be pleasing in your ear. The sounds of our songs. As your word is spoken today, God, may you be glorified. May it not fall on deaf ears. May eyes be open. May ears hear. And may hearts be transformed by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. Welcome, welcome. So glad that you guys are here today. Uh, Last week we began a a four-week series called Rain, where we were talking about Jesus and how he reveals his kingdom in the world, both how he aggravates uh, those who think they have authority and reveals that he is the true authority, right? See, last week we looked at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and talked about the, the healing of the paralyzed man. We said that God truly knows what we're going through. God truly knows what we need, and many times what we think we need is not really what we need. But see, Jesus looks at us, and he knows what our greatest need is, and he's able to deliver it. Because he is God, he has the authority over both the physical realm, the spiritual realm, you name it. He has authority there. And so when he says, your sins are forgiven, it's a done deal. He means it. And so this week, we're going to continue uh, by looking at the verses that immediately follow that passage that we talked about last week. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, and I, and I hope you do, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 13 this week. Uh, we're going to be going uh, Mark 2, 13 to 17. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, no worries. Uh, it's gonna, you can find it on the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app. If you're following along at home as well, the notes will be in there. Just go to the events tab and look for us. But uh, Mark chapter 2, 13 to 17, here's what the word of the Lord says. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. May God bless the reading of his word. See, just like last week, this story begins on the outskirts of Capernaum, where Jesus and his disciples are hanging out. Now, we have to understand here that Capernaum is nestled right along what we call the International Coastal Highway, this ancient trade route that connects Egypt with Mesopotamia and then on into modern-day Syria, Turkey, Iran, Iraq. Part of this highway, then, was called the Via Maris, which means the way of the sea. The way of the sea, and it ran right along the Mediterranean coast until it cuts, it, it kind of splits off for a little bit across the mainland and by the Sea of Galilee. Mark tells us that Jesus is walking alongside the lake. When, when he says the lake, he really means the Sea of Galilee, the, the Lake Gennesaret. It's all the same there. The Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, it's fresh water, it's like a great lake. And as he's walking along, he comes across a tax collector. His name is Matthew. We call him Levi here. We, you can call him Matt. I don't know what he goes by, but you can call him Matthew. Uh, Matthew was the worst. Seriously. The guy was the worst. All right? He was a tax collector. That is code for scum of the earth. Tax collectors, they were seen as traitors. They were extortioners. You know, they were traitors because they worked for the Roman government, and thus they took money from their own people, the Jews, and gave it to the oppressor, the Romans. Okay? So they're traitors. They're, they're seen as collaborators with Rome. They, they, I mean, they have the backing. They have the backing of the Roman soldiers behind them. They could enforce things. See, Matthew had purchased a tax franchise, and that allowed him to charge taxes on anyone walking by his booth. And with his tax booth located along the Via Maris, I assure you that business was very good. I mean, he, he would have had a ton of people walking by. Location, 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 right? He had the perfect setup. 
As one scholar notes, he could collect on imports and exports, bridges, roads, harbors. He could tax the number of axles on your wagon, the number of legs on a donkey. He could charge a pedestrian tax if someone was out walking, and he also charged taxes on the number of fish the fishermen caught. Sure, he had to send some of that money to Rome, but, uh, you know, the tax collectors were extortioners because they could charge whatever they wanted. You name it, they make up their own price. They can charge for anything and everything, and overcharging and cheating people is what they do best. They could line their own pockets, and Matthew, you know, he would have cared if he wasn't swimming in money. He was filthy, and he was rich. And he was filthy rich. He was the worst. And then along comes Jesus. See, we aren't told if there's a a larger interaction here. I mean, wouldn't we love to hear what Jesus says to him? Wouldn't we have loved that? Like, I wonder what he says. Did, Did Matthew have to be convinced? I don't know. All we're told is that Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew complies. See, the first thing I want us to see here is that Jesus qualifies those he calls. Okay? Jesus qualifies those he calls. I mean, seriously, we have already said it. I'm going to say it again. Matthew was the worst. All right? We hate that guy. All right? Why would Jesus want him? We're not told why, but it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that Jesus wants him. Jesus wants him. See, Matthew was the fifth disciple that Jesus called. He called four before him. They were all fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John. Can you imagine the conflict? I mean... They hadn't been disciples all that long. Seriously? You want that guy? Man, I hate that guy. He's the worst. How much money do you think that Matthew got from those four guys over the, over the course of his entire career? Things are very awkward. They're awkward. They would have certainly protested. I mean, they were common fishermen, but Matthew, he's disqualified. I'm sorry, he's just disqualified from serving Jesus. Truly. Truly. Tax collectors, see, tax collectors couldn't serve as a judge or a witness in court because no one trusted them. They were disqualified from that. They were excommunicated from the synagogue because they were defiled. They were disqualified from even being in the synagogue. They had turned their back on their own people, their own nation, their own God. They were detested. Their own family hated them. I mean, to be honest, their families were probably ostracized from the community because of what they did. If anyone is disqualified from serving Jesus, it's Matthew. If anyone is disqualified, and yet Jesus approaches him and says, follow me. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're under a weight of guilt. 
Maybe you're sitting here today and, and you're wrestling with shame. You've done some terrible things. You feel like you can't tell anyone because the sin is just too great. Friend, Jesus knows. He knows. And he knows exactly what you've done. And he knows exactly where you're at right now. And he's saying to you, follow me. Follow me. You're not disqualified. You're not hopeless. I want you to be with me. So let's go. Wow. Praise God. Praise God that as long as Jesus is calling, we are not disqualified. And friends, Jesus is calling all to follow him, right? Jesus, the ultimate seeker, is, is seeking our hearts and our minds. It doesn't matter if you feel worthless. Jesus says, I give people value. I determine your worth. I say that you are worth a great deal and you are worth dying for. See, whatever Matthew's self-image was, his heart was stirred by this man who stands in front of him with compassion and mercy and kindness. When Luke tells the story, he says, he retells the story, and he says, he, and leaving everything, he rose up and followed him. See, Matthew left everything before he even got up. He left it in his heart. He left it in his mind. He left it in his spirit. And then his body followed as he physically got up and walked away from it all. If you're looking for a picture of what repentance looks like, this is it, right? He, he believes and then he bolts. He gone. Talk about faith. Talk about faith. I mean, in many ways, Matthew sacrificed more than all the other disciples. Truly, he did. Why, why did he? Well, I mean, I mean think about it. If, if something went wrong, if things went south, the first four disciples, they, they could always go back to what they were doing before, right? There's always fish. People got to eat. All that, right? But Matthew, he could never go back to tax collecting. Someone else would have taken his place. See, everybody, want, or I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people wanted to be tax collectors because they get rich so quickly. So as soon as uh, he leaves the job, someone is right there to take his place. You know, these jobs are greatly sought after. And his days in the tax business, once he gets up and goes, his days in the tax business are over. He left it all. And followed Christ. The late missionary Jim Elliott is uh, famous for saying, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Matthew had no idea where he was going. He had no idea how long they would be gone, what they would be doing. He only knew who he was going with, and that was enough for him. He only knew that Jesus said, follow him, and that was enough. What experience did he have in the ways of God? What qualified him to be one of Jesus' closest followers? See, don't, don't miss this. If Jesus isn't going to say we're disqualified, then we don't get to say we're unqualified. 
If Jesus isn't saying that your sin disqualifies you, then we don't get to say that I am unqualified. Jesus qualifies those he calls. Like Matthew, we get on-the-job experience following Christ. We do. We learn it by doing it. And what better teacher than Jesus? He's saying, don't worry about what happened before. Don't worry about what you don't know. Follow me. And so Matthew follows Jesus and, and apparently follows him all the way back to his own house. Right? A lot of people think this might have been a going away party. Uh, I don't know. Verse 15 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Verse 16 then says, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus qualifies those who are called. The next point I want us to see is that Jesus loves the unlovable. Jesus loves the unlovable. When Matthew essentially gives his life to Jesus, he invites Jesus over for dinner. I'm sure it was a nice house, one that exemplified extravagant living. People of that status, they like to entertain they throw parties, invite all their friends, if we could indeed call them friends. I mean, see, people like that don't have friends. They, they're terrible people. And so their friends are people who are just like them, or worse maybe. Do you honestly think, I mean honestly, do, do we think that these lying scoundrels are, are really good, you know, at, at ripping off people and being friends? Are they really good at being positive influences on each other? No. They had similar interests, but make no mistake, they could not care less about each other. But of course, they'll come to the party. Who doesn't like free food? Open bar? Are those pigs in a blanket? I mean, when you're kicked out of, this, when you're kicked out of the synagogue for being a bad Jew, you can eat whatever you want. Okay? And, and as they always say, it starts with pigs in a blanket, ends in debauchery. Okay, but here is Jesus. Here is Jesus at a party, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. How dare he? How dare he? See, there was a line, and Jesus had crossed it. In fact, here's the line. There's Jesus, all the way over there, and there's this clear distinction. There's this clear distinction between those who follow the law and those who they call people of the land. People of the land. See, the Orthodox were forbidden, sorry, the Orthodox were forbidden to have anything to do with these people. Seriously, the strict law keeper was to have no fellowship with them at all. Don't talk with them, don't go on vacation with them as much as you can help it. You know, they, they're not even allowed to do business with them. To marry your daughter to one of them was like turning your daughter over to a wild beast. But above all, above all, you must not accept hospitality from or give hospitality to such a person. Above all, 
Why? What? I mean, that seems a little strong. Well, it's really two reasons. The first was simple pride and contempt. We are so up here, and they are so down here. The rabbis had a saying, and it was this, the ignorant man can never be pious. The ignorant man can never be pious. See, this divide between the arrogant aristocrats and the mob, as they were <laughs> kindly referred to as, they, they, that existed since the Greeks. It was a benchmark of modern civilization. I mean, uh, there, there was this uh, one Greek uh, philosopher was translated. Um, his name was, uh, uh, let, me, let me get this right here, Heraclitus, right? And um, he was translated uh, by another guy, another Greek, into a common language, one that the ordinary uh, person, you know, the unlettered folk, uh, they could read and understand. And Heraclitus responded, and he says this, all right? He says this, Heraclitus am I. Why do ye drag me up and down, ye illiterate? It was not for you I toiled, but for such as understand me. One man in my sight is a match for 30,000, but the countless hosts do not make a single one. I mean, the, you can hear the pride and the arrogance and the contempt just dripping from the words, Heraclitus am I. And that was the first reason we hate them because they're not like us. The second reason that you were to have nothing to do with those who break the law was simply fear. Fear. They were afraid that they might become infected with sin. They were afraid that the contagion of the sinners could be contracted. Little did they know that it was already infecting them. Little did they know it was already inside them. And here in the midst of this contempt, the Holy One of God humbles himself and befriends the low and the forgotten, the mocked and the scorned. He rolls up his sleeves and he isn't afraid to get his hands dirty. See, these other law followers. They had been like a doctor who would refuse to attend a case of infectious illness because they themselves might get it. And Jesus says, I'm a doctor. Jesus says, I'm a doctor. I'm here to help. I'm a surgeon and I am willing to operate. See, these people, they were unlovable. They weren't even likable. They didn't even like each other. And Jesus plops right down next to them at the table and says, I will be your friend. Who needs a friend more than the one who doesn't have any? See, our king was willing to do whatever it took. He was willing to leave his throne in heaven and come to earth for this very reason. 
where anyone else would have stopped short, where everyone else would have pulled up, Jesus goes all in. He says he's not afraid. We understand that perfect love casts out fear. Our God is love. And he's not afraid. See, many times we think of mercy and grace and we jump immediately to the cross. But we must understand that mercy and grace doesn't just start when his blood is poured out. It starts at the beginning with a God who has no beginning. His whole life embodies mercy and grace because that's what love does. Our God is love and his mercy and grace reign. Our God is love, and his reign is characterized by mercy and grace. Charles Spurgeon, the the great preacher, once said, Mercy can only be exercised where there is sin, and grace cannot be manifested except to the undeserving. That's what was so different about Jesus from all of the other uber-religious. Grace turns its face towards sin when judgment looks away. Grace turns its face towards sin. Praise God that our great physician looks at disease. He looks towards the diseased. Jesus responds to the Pharisees in in verse 17. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. We've talked about how Jesus qualifies those he calls and how he loves the unlovable. The last thing today I want us to to see is that Jesus saves those who need saving. Jesus saves those who need saving. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and in this friendship, it's good to be needy. In this friendship, it's good to be needy. He says it's the sick that need a doctor, and so the sick get a doctor. It's the sinners who get called and not the righteous. Now, he's not saying you should go on sinning because you want to have a little one-on-one time with Jesus. No, Paul, Paul addresses that in Romans when he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? See, we do not sin so that Jesus will love us, and we don't not sin so that Jesus will love us. We already know he loves us. He loves the unlovable. He loves the sinner. And that's you and me. That's us. But rather, as those who have already been saved, we actively fight against sin because Jesus loves us and gave his life for us. See, guys, I've known far too many people in my life who have, have, you know, they, they have no need for a Savior. I've known far too many people in my life who have no need for a Savior because they have nothing from which that needs saving. Either they think they can do it on their own, as in uh, an act of salvation, they can save themselves through good works, good deeds, simply being a good person, you name it, or they do not recognize that they even have sin at all. They haven't done anything wrong. That's not to say that they haven't sinned. They just don't see it as a problem. So many people in my life 
They don't have a Savior because they don't need saving. But Jesus saves those who need saving. See, we can only be fixed. We can only be fixed if we know what, that we're broken. We can only address the issues that we're aware of. We don't know what we don't know. And we are only saved when we need saving. Do I know that I need Jesus? How aware of this fact am I? Are we willing to admit that our best efforts apart from Christ, our most righteous works done on our own, are deserving of hell? Are we willing to admit that? Are we willing to say we are completely and utterly hopeless and helplessly lost without God? See, Jesus makes it clear that he's calling all sinners to himself. He's not saying he's against righteousness in general. He's against the false sense of righteousness. A false sense of salvation. I remember being in college when I was introduced to a, a word. I was at my little United Methodist Church, and, and the pastor uh, introduced me to a new word. It's not every day you hear a new word, but here was the word. The word was hubris. Hubris. It's a great word. Not many people use it. You should use it. It's good. Hubris is a false sense of pride. Having pride when you ought not to. I would say, in my estimation, there are a good many people in the church who have hubris. What's worse than people who are confident in their salvation when they shouldn't be? It's hubris that causes us to think that somehow we are justified before God on our own merits. That somehow I am good enough to come into the presence of the king. Friends, we are saved the very moment that we turn to Christ in repentance and believe, and that is called justification. We confess sin, we place it squarely on the shoulders of him who died for us, and in that moment, we're saved. Our destination is heaven. John 5, 24, Jesus tells us that whoever hears his word and believes that they have then crossed over from death to life. But see, all too often, we, we pray a prayer, and that's it. You know, we were like, oh yeah, I, I prayed the prayer. What else do I need? We got what we needed from God, so now what? After salvation, do we still need God? After we accept the gospel, what more could God really offer us? We emphatically need God. We still need God. Yes, there is more. We need to be saved. We have already been saved, but we are also being saved daily. That is, that is the crazy thing of the gospel. We have already been saved, but we are being saved daily. We still have needs. We still need saving daily. We need the good news of the gospel daily. Sin is being rooted out of my life, and I am being changed from the inside out to be like Christ. And we call that sanctification. We call that sanctification. 
See, I know in my life when I get so busy living that I don't remember. I don't remember where I came from. I don't remember what God has done in my life. I don't recognize where my life comes from. Friends, don't make that mistake. See, the moment I think I don't need God, the moment I think I don't need God is the moment that I need him more than ever. Pride comes before the fall, and so as I'm moving along thinking I'm in charge of my life, man, what a great little life I've made for myself. When I think of how great I am, it's always right then, right? Something happens. Suddenly I'm like, I need you, God. I need you. And it turns out that the judgment seat and the throne of my life are the same chair. The judgment seat, the one that I needed to be saved, Jesus has taken my judgment. But I'm still on the throne, still calling those shots. I need saving daily. See, Christ came for those who couldn't save themselves. And even though God declared me righteous at that very moment where I cried out to him to save me, I still need him to save me from myself each and every day. As the old hymn goes, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Let me ask you, is it you or Christ on the judgment seat? If you have not trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then it's you who sits there. You sit on the judgment seat. You are responsible. There's no forgiveness for sins. You will be responsible for the penalty of sin. However, if you have said, yes, I am a sinner, and you put your faith and trust in the one who forgives sin, then Jesus is the one who took the judgment for your sins on the cross. As a believer, you are declared righteous. And King Jesus should be seated on the throne of your life, guiding you, sustaining you, and empowering you by the Holy Spirit. But what I want us to see here today is this. If you've been saved, there's no need to put on fronts or appearances. <laughs> We're all in need of a Savior, whether we recognize it or not. It just seems that some are maybe more readily able to admit our shortcomings and incapabilities more than others. And if this passage shows us anything, it shows us there's no reward for self-righteousness. 
There's no reward for that. There's no special privileges for those who need Jesus less. Rather, it tells us that our great God sent his son to earth to seek and save the lost. Jesus seeks us not because we are so lovable, but rather because he is love. He calls sinners to himself and they are saved. Hungry mouths get fed. Sight is for the blind. Liberty is for the captive. And life is for the dead. Praise God. Will you bow your heads with me as we go before the Lord? Jesus, you are a good doctor who makes yourself available to all who need you. You are the perfect one to heal us from our sin. Thank you that we have access to you whenever we need you. You're always available. You're always able to perfectly diagnose our lives and you always provide a complete cure thank you for even paying the bill God all too often we we think of ourselves we say I've gone too far I've sinned too much Help us to remember that we cannot sin too much for you. As your word says in Romans, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Thank you, God, that we aren't beyond saving, that your grace is far greater, and with you, all things are possible. God, I pray that we would know that that we would feel that that we would accept that as a gift of you and your mercy thank you for loving us thank you for calling us God you are so good Thank you for qualifying us for your service in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Right now, wherever you're at, we would love for you to respond. We're going to sing a song, and we want you to know the altar is open for prayer. If you'd like someone to pray with, there will be prayer ministers over here available. But the altar is open for you to do business with God. Let's all come to the Lord together. Let's all come to the altar. Please stand with us as we sing.